This morning's text, um, as we continue to walk through Luke's gospel, is um, we need to consider what our Lord is explaining here in 33 through 36 of what has just been read for you um, in light of the previous text of the sign of Jonah. I think I'm hearing, I'm hearing myself bounce. Am I really loud? Am I really loud to everyone? No? Just loud to myself? All right. I'll block it out. I'll be fine. But the best way to understand, once again, the idea of the sign of, uh, or the lamp analogy, or the optical illustration that he is giving us this morning in 32 through 36, is in some continued conversation to the text that led up to it, which was the sign of Jonah. And the reason for understanding it in this flow of thought with Luke is that it's a continued response that our Lord is giving this crowd who is present that sinfully demands for a sign to be given to them. Now again, I won't go over all the text from before with the sign of Jonah because we covered it last week. Hopefully we can somewhat call to mind. But you remember in verse 29, he says, when the crowds were increasing, now again, the crowds are getting extremely large according to 12.1. If you were to look over at 12.1, we're talking thousands, many thousands of individuals here. So much so as we move forward, they're going to get so crowded crowded on top of each other, trying to see the Christ, that they're trampling upon one another. So again, we're talking massive amounts of individuals at this point. And his assessment of the crowd in 29 is, this generation is an evil generation. Now the assessment, you remember why they're evil, is because they're demanding from him a sign. Prove to us that you are God. Prove to us that you are holy or that you are good, that you are the Messiah. And he is saying this is a sinful demand because throughout his ministry, he has provided sign after sign. And they respond, whether it's in preaching or whether it's in healing, they continuously respond, whether in one village or another village, in the open plains, down by the water, wherever he has been, they continue to suggest or in our text, outright respond that he himself, the Christ, is not the solution, but rather they assess him to be the problem. Some of, us, some of you have not been able to be with us so far through the Gospel of Luke, but for those of us who have been together, back in chapter 8, you don't have to turn there, but you recall in chapter 8, he just passed across the sea, and he is in the land of the Gerasenes, uh, the countryside of the Gerasenes. You recall this episode with the, with the demon-possessed man, and he heals the demon-possessed man, and he takes the demons, the demonic hosts that are there with this demon-possessed individual, and he sends them into the pigs in the countryside. You recall that scenario there. The pigs go running off the cliff, and then they, and then they kill themselves. Now, this event of a sign of the power of the kingdom... His power to heal humanity, his power to control demonic influence, demonic influence and so forth, as he sends them into the pigs. Do you remember what the response of the villagers were at, was at that time? They came back and then they, rather less than politely, asked him to leave. Whatever's going on here, we don't want any part of it. Again, we want a sign to know maybe if you're God or not. Activity, healing, sign. You're the problem, not the solution. You need to leave. This is consistently the response of the larger sections of the crowds throughout his ministry. And here, beyond that anecdotal evidence of the, what we could call maybe the Bay of Pigs event of the New Testament, 
um, the, the, this event. Um, here in this text, he says in 11.15, you notice they marvel at this healing, this event. So, so the people are marveling. And yet in verse 15 of chapter 11 here in our text, notice again, sign after sign, preaching event after preaching event. Verse 15. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul. You know, the prince of demons. In other words, he's no more than a man who's demon-possessed. Again and again, he is not the solution. He is perceived as the problem. And so they get through this one event of saying he's a demon-possessed individual, and then they come down where our text was last week, and they demand from him, make it clear to us. Give us a sign. And our Lord makes clear in his response, that's simply you being you, more sinful, showing your lack of spiritual perception is his response to the crowd. And now this morning, he continues that same response. And I review that for you just so you can see this is consistent, the same picture that Luke is painting again and again. The response is that you are not the solution, but actually you're the biggest part of our problem. And then they think from their own perspective, we would know if you are the solution we, in our powers of our own empirical evidence or our power of evaluation, our sense of self, we would know if you are the Christ. And from our perspective, you're not. So our Lord then continues in verse 33 to offer further response to this moral darkness, this lack of perception on the part of the people. So again, he offers us this little bit of an obstacle, optical illustration to show that the men and women are those who are cloaked in inward darkness. In other words, their lack of perception is imputed not to the inability of Jesus to communicate through miracle. It's not simply that, again, what we covered last week, if he did it in another way, or perhaps instead of healing a demon-possessed individual, he should maybe you know, make a forest bear, just speak and devour all the trees. Maybe it's the type of miracle. Maybe it's the kind of sign. Rather, it's not the sign that is the stumbling block to the individual. Uh, the problem is the moral darkness in the heart, the inability to spiritually see. And the culpability of that darkness rests squarely upon the individual. He is imputing their inability to see. He is imputing it to them. Notice verse 33 as we see in our text. He says in response yet again to the crowd, no one after lighting a lamp See, right? If you were thinking he was just walking out and then he just started with this way, it would seem a bit confusing, perhaps, you know, if it was a random saying. But again, we're seeing it in a continued response to their lack of seeing. We want to see something else. You can't see it all. That's the problem. So, in other words, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar on, or under a basket 
but they put it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Now, what I want to do with this text is it seems in some ways straightforward, and then in some ways it kind of seems awkward. Or how exactly do we get at what he's trying to lay down here spiritually? What is he addressing? So what I want to do is kind of handle the text first by stating out what is most broadly at work in this picture or in this illustration of illumination, or we could call it optical illustration. What is he getting at in the big picture? And then we'll come back and we'll walk through it piece by piece, hopefully uh, in a helpful way. But the whole purpose of the illustration is simply this. The purpose of light is illumination. Pretty straightforward stuff, right? The purpose of light is illumination. So Jesus is stating the obvious point to the individuals as he explains to them their sense of moral darkness. He makes the obvious point. It would make absolutely no sense at all to place a light in a hidden location whereby no one receives the benefit of the illuminating effects. Right? Pretty straightforward stuff. This would make no sense. He then gives us two specific examples, just to drive home the kind of Captain Obvious moment, to drive it home to the audience. This is so obvious. Think about it. What purpose would there be to take a light and, number one, throw it in the basement? Would that make any sense? Look at the text. Again, no one after lighting a lamp. So you see the cadence of the individual, what they're doing. Think about this spiritually. He puts it in a very obvious illustration. No one, after they go through the work of lighting a lamp, would put it in a cellar. Right? Because it would obviously make no sense to light a lamp, take it to the basement then go back upstairs into the living room and sit in darkness with everyone you invited over. Would that make any sense to anyone? No. Okay, great. So what is the point of light then? Illumination. Right. So illustration number one, don't light a lamp when it's in a dark place and then say, great, we could really use some light around here. I can't see anything. Light the lamp, illumination in the room, and be like, okay, I'm going to go take it to the basement. No, 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 we're, we're living up here. Yeah, I know, but I'm going to go put it in the basement and then come back and we can live in darkness. Jesus says, obviously no one operates that way. He gives us a second likewise illustration. He says, no one puts it in the basement after they have lit it. That would be contrary to its function, contrary to its purpose, or... Neither do they put it under a basket. So again, just a sense of illustration. The term basket here can be translated uh, uh, also a measuring vessel. So anyway, at any rate, it would be kind of a bowl instrument. And so it's obvious you wouldn't light it and throw it in the basement and then live in darkness. And neither would you take the effort to create light by lighting a lamp and then stick your bowl over top of it and then go about your business living in the darkness. No one would do such a thing. Once you go to the effort of a well-lit lamp, you would obviously not conceal the effect for which you were going after. 
So again, the point of the entire illustration we need to see, number one, is a response to their inability to see. Give us a sign. I have, and I will, a different type of sign that you don't want to see. But the problem is your inability to perceive the sign that stands before you. Then this illustration of light and its function, the point of light itself is what our Lord is driving at. The very point of light itself is to provide illumination to those who sit in darkness. That's the point of light. In the natural world, not spiritually speaking, just simply right now we understand that. We have lights on in here for the effect of being able to see what we're looking at. So the purpose of light, yes, is so that we can see if we were sitting in darkness. Now, speaking a little more spiritually, rather than simply concretely or physically as our Lord is doing here in the initial optical illustration, think with me just briefly on a spiritual level as that's what our Lord is really going after here. In John's gospel, not so much in Luke where we're at and we'll continue to be for a little season of time here, but if we were to look at John's gospel, we were able to preach through John's gospel years back, maybe eight or more years ago, when we uh, were first planting, maybe, uh, man, nine or ten years ago, planting Redeemer at any rate. Um, we were able to preach through John's gospel. And if you were to, I'm sure many of you have read through John's gospel, one of the, a very strong theme in John's gospel is what our Lord is addressing here, the theme of light versus darkness. This sense of spiritual light and spiritual darkness in the cosmic forces is a big theme in John's gospel. In fact, uh, it comes up again and again. I'll just read for you just briefly again because we're, we're thinking about this concept of light and darkness, the importance of light for the purpose of illuminating those who are sitting in darkness. This is not a small piece. It is a huge piece of the gospel. It, it, it is the, a conduit, a way in which our Lord speaks of the gospel between light and and darkness. John primarily in chapter 1, verse 4, I'll just begin there and just briefly read a couple of verses just so you see how important this theme of light and darkness in great contrast is. John 1, verse 4, he begins, in him, this is John speaking of our Lord, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The function of the light, and this is, again, what our Lord is getting at here in Luke 11. So hear it in light of our present text. John, again, he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. What does the light do? John says, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. He goes on to say, the true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. You see, Jesus, in other words, has done his saving work, which each of us sits here in this very moment and hears from his most holy word. And those in this portion of the gospel themselves saw the many signs, heard the many sermons, 
He has done his saving work as the light of God on an open stage of human history. And he has done this for all to witness. That's the point of what our Lord is getting at here. Think about it now in light of John, back in 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in the basement. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under a basket. But rather, they put it on a stand. Why? Why do you want the light on the stand? So those who enter may see the light. In other words, Jesus is the lamp well lit. That's the illustration. He himself is the well lit lamp of the text. It is he in his ministry of which they say, show us something. Make it clear. Give us a sign. Let us see. He says, he himself is the well-lit lamp. He himself has provided life-saving illumination to those who sit in darkness. You see, here in Luke 11, the light, again, that is providing illuminating effect in this illustration of our Lord's in verse 33 is Jesus himself. That's how we read this text. Let me read verse 33 again for you in light of this thought that you're perceiving the lighting or the lamp is our Lord himself. To the crowd, Think of it in these terms. Verse 33, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Now, just to strengthen this sense of our Lord in verse 33 as being the light himself, as being the lamp well lit on the stage of human history, he did not come to conceal his ministry. He did not come to be a well-hidden lamp in a basement. He did not come to have a bowl put over or in otherwise to conceal. But rather, he has openly provided life-saving illumination to those who sit in darkness. Consider, if you have your text of Scripture, turn over to chapter 1 just for a moment to see. This indeed is in stride with the purpose for why he came. Uh, look at the language of chapter 1. Look over in Luke 1 just briefly to see how the language of illuminating effect is tied to Jesus' physical appearing in human history. In other words, again and again, he is the lamp well lit. He is here providing sign after sign, sermon after sermon, which is saving illumination uh, to those who sit in darkness. Look at uh, chapter 1 if you're there, and I'll begin in, uh, remember, this is Zechariah's prophecy considering John, but then as it, the language shifts in verse 78 um, and 79, considering the appearing of our Lord. Um, again, he is the lamp well lit. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, 
whereby, and, and this is significant, whereby the sunrise shall visit. Uh, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now look at the sun that is rising and the purpose of the sunrise. What, what will the sunrise that visits us do? What will he do when he is here because of the tender mercies of our God? What will he himself do? He will, verse 79, give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He will guide our feet in the way of peace. This is who he is. And this is what he does. He is the sunrise of God's merciful revelation. And when he appears, he will provide for us life-saving illumination. We sit in darkness morally. We sit in sin-covered eyes, ears that can't hear, eyes that cannot see, and hearts that cannot perceive. And in the mercy of God, the sunrise will visit us from on high. And when he comes, he will provide the saving, illuminating effects that will take the darkness out of the eye, the heart, and the ears so that we can see, we can hear, and we can perceive the saving truth of God. All of this is tied to the appearing of Christ. He is the lamp well lit. Look over, and it's not just an isolated comment about his coming, but look over where he appeared uh, with his parents before Simeon. And that's just over in chapter 2. So if you can look over in chapter 2, look in verse 28. I'll begin in verse 28. But then look at Simeon's response to having seen the baby Christ. Verse 28 of chapter 2. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. The salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Look at the language. Verse 32 a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You see, if we combine both Zechariah's prophecy and Simeon's blessing of the baby Jesus, we see a very clear picture of Jesus Christ as the dawn of God's redeeming salvation. That's who he is. And according to his purpose, he then provides light, life-saving light to all who sit in darkness. This is the well-lit lamp that our Lord is referring to, to those who demand a sign to be seen. He says, something greater than Solomon is right before you. Something greater than Jonah is right before you. I am a well-lit lamp of saving revelation. But notice um, 
what they say in response or what he continues to then disclose to their response or, or, or how you receive or reject this well-lit lamp. Look at verse 34. So let me just complete verse 33. You see, so that those who enter may see the light. That is the purpose for his coming, that those who enter might perceive. Verse 34, and he explains how one receives or perceives the light. Verse 34, your eye um, is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Now, consider the, again, illustration of what he is getting at here with the idea of the health of a body and the broadcasting of light or the broadcasting of darkness by stepping back and let's just walk through it for a moment piece by piece. Consider just off the, at the very outset, verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. So for instance, consider the analogy and the function of an eye as a lamp. In other words, what our Lord is getting at here in the expression of the eye as the lamp of the body, what the eye is set upon will be spread abroad within the entire body, right? That, that, that's what we're getting at as far as function of the illustration. Your eye is the lamp of your body, you see? And so when your eye is healthy, the result will be a whole body that is healthy. When it is ill, the broadcasting light that is going in through the eye or the perception of spiritual reality is going into the body and it reinforces either the darkness that is there or it brings health to overcome the darkness that is present. So the eye here functions as that conduit of perception. It gathers the light that is outside of oneself and then it filters that light in and through and broadcasts it to the whole body or Quite simply, it is this. If the eye, for instance, is set upon selfishness, set upon covetousness, set upon rebellion, set upon divisiveness, set upon lust, set upon greed, then the whole body will follow suit with greater and greater moral darkness. The lack of perception, the lack of of casting one's eye upon what is appropriate for the health of the entire body is not someone else's fault. course of one's own wickedness, the course of one's own interior or spiritual depravity is not someone else's fault. It rests with you. You are culpable for the direction of your life. You are the sinner whose eye is set willfully against generosity and set upon selfishness. That's what he's getting at. Where where the eye is resting, where the gaze comes 
to rest is then taken in and, broad, and broadly cast about in the entire body and the whole person morally follows suit. This is an important note for each of us because it's connecting one's affections to the course or direction of one's entire spiritual life. The obvious question of, uh, of application is simply this. Where are your affections? Where is your gaze? There is a song back uh, in, in the, uh, man, maybe the early 2000s. Um, I don't know if they're still, I think they're still a band. Um, it was a Christian contemporary band, um, Casting Crowns. I imagine some of you have heard their songs. Maybe we even sang them or I don't know. Um, at any rate, I think they're still out and about. There was, um, there was a song that they had back in the early 2000s um, called It's a Slow Fade. I don't know if you ever, any, some of you have heard that. I don't have to take a raise of hands, but I'm going to generously assume I'm not the only one now standing out in an island who has heard that song before. Um, but let's pretend we're sharing a moment anyway. Um, and okay, thanks. <laughs> Me and JD have heard it. We go way back. Um, but we, so you recall that it's a helpful perspective. It's nothing, you know, revelatory, of course, but it's a helpful perspective to remember that sense of the warning within the song. And it pairs with this text so well because the idea of it is a slow fade. And I think the song went on to say something when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade. It's kind of like the, the constant refrain through the song. And the idea that, you know, a whole life given over to depravity or to lust or to given over to various forms of sin and, and wantonness doesn't occur like the sun rising. Like, it came up, I'm a different person. I woke up this morning and I'm radically different. The, the idea and the perspective of the idea of the eye coming to rest upon an object doesn't consume one's inner life immediately. But the warning also is that indeed it is a slow fade. The, the, the affections slowly change. And what became a moment becomes a habit. And then a, a habit kind of has that power to create a course in life. And then that course of life creates a whole different web of relationships. And that course in life creates a whole different withdrawal from the things that are indeed light. And it is a, I warn, as you know and I know together, it is a slow fade. Almost imperceivable. And so the text continues to speak of the importance of a healthy gaze to prevent that slow fade. Look at the text. He, he, he speaks of the, the response, the implications of your gaze. Now again, he's speaking this to the crowd of unbelief. 
Your eye is the lamp of your body. So, so you look at my signs, you hear my preaching, you hear the word, you see the healing, and when you look at it, your body is filled with darkness. But look at verse 34. When your eye is the lamp of the body, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. So, that, so there is a life here that is carved out in 34 as a, light of, uh, a life of light and a life of darkness. And, and, and it's so important here about one's gaze, whether it's initially the gaze upon Christ as Savior and Lord, whereby one repents and comes to receive and rest upon Him as He has freely offered to you in the gospel. As this text speaks to the crowd, we think you're demon-possessed. Gaze differently. The reason why you think that is the dark, evil morality within your own heart. Your sin is blinding you. So whether it's the new gaze to see him as Savior and Lord or the continued gaze of the pilgrim, the continued gaze of the saints, the importance is the same. The eye is the lamp of your body. What your eye comes to rest upon has an effect upon your life. So he ends the text in 35 with two things, which are very natural. There is a warning and a promise that is attached to our gaze. We could say gaze, we could say affections, we could say aspirations. We're dealing with the heart, the whole person. And so he speaks about life direction And to this crowd immediately in 35, and to us as well, it ends with a warning and a promise. Verse 35, look at the warning. Therefore he speaks. Therefore. Now again, putting it in the context of this audience or making application to ourselves. Consider just briefly though for the audience. Therefore be careful. Lest the light in you be darkness. Indeed it is, right? Right here in the text it is. They think they know everything. They think they have the corner on religious knowledge. Remember last week? They stand in the place of judge and jury over him. No, you prove yourself to us. So he says to them, be careful that that which you think you know the light that you think you hold dear actually turn out to be darkness. Examine yourself. Are you seeing with spiritual eyes? Or as the refrain of the Gospels goes out time and time again, let those who have ears to hear listen. Speaking to thousands, let those who have eyes to see See, let those who have ears to hear, hear. Do you have eyes that are seeing clearly? Are you receiving what is said in the word of God as authoritative, as binding, as worthy of your attention to repent and receive, to grow thereby and be nourished? 
do you have eyes that see? Or do you have eyes that think they see and you know it all and you're drifting in darkness? Be careful, he says. Lest the light you think you possess turn out to be darkness. And then to those who are in the same crowd, who undoubtedly there are folk who come to rest upon him. He says to each in 36, this gospel type of promise to the receptive heart. Verse 36. If then your body, right, so, so is full of light, that, that means your eye is healthy. You're seeing what is actually there. You perceive correctly by grace through faith. You perceive correctly. And because you perceive correctly, in other words, you come to rest and receive Jesus as he is freely offered to you in the gospel. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. I come through faith by grace alone unto Christ alone. Well, then if that is the case, if your, if your eye is healthy, then your body is full of light. He goes on to make this promise, having no part dark. He then, he then fills it in with, with, with additional language of promise. It will be holy, bright. You know, as we started, it will be like when a lamp with its rays gives you light. It will be, like I said earlier, it will be a well-lit lamp that has put out on a stand. It's functional. It's actually doing the job. It's providing what is needed. It is nourishing those who are in darkness. It is providing the path that is correct. It is guiding our feet in the way of peace. When your eyes see clearly, so as to perceive Christ as Lord, that is to see the well-lit lamp that stands before you, or this morning, to see the well-lit lamp that is preached before you. This text you perceive it rightly. You submit to it through faith that indeed He is the light that came into the world and in Him there was no darkness at all. That is your confession. That is what you receive through faith. Then you have a well-lit life that will continue to burn brightly in the way of peace. Conversely, if this morning you sit and are indifferent or sit and know that you're in rebellion to the text that is preached, our Lord's warning, be careful, lest the light that you perceive, lest that sense of self-knowledge that you possess turn out to be darkness. 
Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text of evaluation. We thank you for the call to rest upon you wholly as you freely offered to us in the gospel. We thank you for the light of revelation of the glory of God that you have given in your most holy word and your acts and your works and your preaching and your ministry and your laying your life down, dying on our behalf only to take it up again to ascend to the Father. We thank you for the life-giving spirit that animates the church. We thank you for your life laid down and taken up on our behalf. We thank you for your word. We pray that there will be spiritually perceptive hearts and minds here at Redeemer, that many will continue to be nourished by your word as it goes forward, confessing their sin, reorienting the sense of their gaze by your mercy and grace that you grant. Nourish us now, Lord, not only as we hear of you, but as we gaze upon you in your table as well. Nourish our faith through word and sacrament. In Christ's name we would ask, amen. As you remain your seats just for a moment with your heads bowed, eyes closed, continue to respond to the sermon that you heard as we prepare to hear um, the gospel in the table. I'm going to invite the worship team up at this point as well. They're going to play through Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, a song that we sang earlier. If you could stay in your seats there and meditate as they play through that. <laughs> 